Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today to have Dr. William Hasker. He's a professor of philosophy over at Huntington University. Um, he received his PhD in theology and philosophy of religion from the University of Edinburgh. Um, he's a distinguished scholar. He's done a lot of work on the problem of evil, the openness of God, the Trinity, and just so many other super exciting topics. I'm super pumped to have Dr. Hasker on today. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by you guys over at patreon.com slash adhering apologetics. So if you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron. You can support for as little as a dollar a month, uh, literally just pennies a day. And that'd be so huge if you're able to do that. But let's get rolling today. So Dr. Hasker, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about like the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, social Trinitarianism, um, the Latin model, and just all kinds of other models. To get things started, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and things like that? Well, I'm, I'm a retired professor, been retired for longer than I want to admit, but I keep on writing and uh, occasionally uh, giving talks various places, so I'm still uh, pretty active in, in the field. Um, Zach has mentioned some of the areas that I've uh, worked in, and uh, recently the, doc the Doctrine of the Trinity is certainly one of the main areas of concern. And uh, I think there's a lot of good work that needs to be done, even though this has been a doctrine of the church for uh, nearly 2,000 years now. So uh, I'm happy to share with you the whatever insights I have and answer whatever questions uh, Zach wants to ply me with. So carry on. <laughs> so let's start with this, Dr. Hasker. Like, what is the traditional Christian doctrine of the Trinity? Well, very, very succinctly, the doctrine of the Trinity says there is one God, and somehow in this one God, there are three entities uh, traditionally called persons. Uh, and named as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of these persons, the Son, became incarnate, became human, a human being in some way, uh, in Jesus Christ, about whom we learn in, in the Gospels and in the New Testament. And this is a key essential element in the salvation of human beings and bringing, bringing people back to God from our state of estrangement from God. Uh, that's, that's a very brief capsule. And of course, uh, a lot of this requires further explanation, but that's uh, if, if there is a doctrine of the Trinity, then it, uh, it, it will follow those uh, statements that I've laid out there. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. Um, when we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, Dr. Hasker, um, what are some like ideas you want to avoid when making sense of the Trinity, trying to make sense of these three persons in the one like divine figure? Well, uh, when uh, you suggested this as a, as a question, it seems to me that an important thing to avoid is 
going off half cocked. Uh, people can you can get hold of one or two aspects or ideas about the Trinity, and from that you get an an interesting problem of some kind, and go off and cook up your own solution to that problem, which may actually have not that much to do with what the doctrine of the Trinity historically is. So I, I think in order to think seriously about this, first of all, you need to know a fair bit about the what is taken to be the biblical basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. And you have to know a fair bit about the history of the doctrine. That is the way the doctrine was formulated and has been discussed. Now, that doesn't mean you have to spend your life studying this history, but if you don't have some kind of grasp of it, I think you're probably going to go off off the rails. And then the third point is you have to have some knowledge of the philosophical issues that sort of surround this uh, this core doctrine. When, if you've got all of those in place, then you're in a position to do some serious thinking. But if you, uh, if you go off without paying careful attention to all those things, I'm, I'm afraid the prospects are not too good. At least that's, that's my, my perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful how you kind of break down Dr. Haster, like these three different areas. Like if you want, like for Christians, like and people trying to understand the Trinity, it's important to know like the theological roots, like w- what's going on here on the like the biblical basis for the Trinity. Also understanding the history, like what are these great thinkers? Like what is Augustine thinking about the Trinity? What is Aquinas? Um, what are the reformers thinking? Like knowing this history um, and then also just thinking about like the philosophical sense, like where is philosophy at and trying to make sense of the Trinity? And I think that's super helpful for people to see these different parts of the discussion that come together when we're talking about the Trinity. Well, they, they need to all come together, you know, in, in your your answer, your solution, your, your view, your developed view of the Trinity. And so you, you need to be involved with all of them. Yes, you do. Mm, awesome. Okay, so let's talk about your view, which is like the social doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, there's different like models of it. But like, what is your social doctrine of the Trinity, Dr. Hasker? Okay, I, I think, uh, first of all, the starting, the starting point for a social Trinity is looking at what the New Testament shows us about the relationship between God the Father and and Jesus. And one of the things, one of the central, maybe the central assumption or central point in understanding the New Testament is that the relationship between Jesus and the Father is seen as a relationship between the Trinitarian Father and Son. That is, it's not just there is this man, Jesus, I mean, there is, of course, but it's not just a relationship between a man and God, but between Jesus, God the Son, and his Heavenly Father. Now, this this comes out 
Well, one of the clearest places for it that it comes out is in the last chapters of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking to his disciples in the Last summer, Supper, and then he, he gives this wonderful uh, prayer to his Father. And he talks to the Father about the relationship that they have. Uh, it's, it's absolutely astonishing and wonderful. But, and there are, there are parts in the other Gospels that point in this direction, too. But one really striking, striking incident is when Jesus is on the cross and the words of abandonment, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this is one person crying out to another person in anguish because it seems to him that this other person, namely his father, would have done or might have done more to make this possible or make it endurable for, for Jesus. So we have this relationship between the Father and Son. And this, I think, this goes right to the core of social Trinitarianism, because we see that the relationship between father and son is a relationship between persons. Now, I've, uh, as a capsule definition for a person, I, I say that a person is a center of consciousness capable of acts of reason, affection, and will. Uh, and capable of relationships with other persons. And that's exactly, it seems to me, what we have in the case of Jesus and the Father. And there are other indications in the New Testament that lead us to extend that definition to apply to the Holy Spirit as well. So it seems to me if we have these things clearly in mind, we have the core of social Trinitarianism right there. And I think that, um, let's say, non-social or anti-social Trinitarians really tend to lose sight of what they really should be talking about there. That is this relationship between Jesus and the Father. And, and I think that, that gives you the, the core, the central core of social Trinitarianism right there. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you, Dr. Hasker. What I'd love to do now is like, I'm thinking about those like these three like important aspects that you talked about when making into the Trinity in, in, that you brought up. And I would love to just like briefly like go over these three and like seeing how they fit into social Trinitarianism. Um, so like on the theological side, you mentioned a lot about the relationship between like Jesus, the son and the father um, that have like a good like foundation theologically for making sense of your view. Is there anything else you would want to say about like making sense, like first theologically of the social doctrine of the Trinity? Well, that's the, that's the, that's where you, you have to start, you know? And, and I might say that some people think, you know, get worried uh, and say, well, this sounds like two gods or three gods. 
and I and I would say that the way the New Testament views this relationship, if we're Christians, we have to think that that is an acceptable way of thinking about God. And so we can't say that it is tritheistic. There is one God, and this one God somehow encompasses Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think the New Testament sort of uh, forces us to admit that that's okay. But then, then we need to, we certainly need to go on and explain further how it is that these three persons are together, uh, the one God. And that's, that's a major, major task. A lot of work goes under that heading. So, okay, so that's helpful. Um, now let's look at, like, the history side. Like, where do you see, like, what people um, in the past have, like, looked at, like, something like a social doctrine, and it seems like to you, like, they might hold to something like this? Well, uh, in my my book on the Trinity, I focus on the uh, people around the, uh, of course, Athanasius and the, Council of Nicaea uh, in 325 was extremely important in the church. But the people that I focus on are the main theologians surrounding what we call the Nicene Creed, which is actually the creed of the Council of Constantinople in 381. And, and Augustine uh, in the early... Uh, fifth century and then four hundreds, who who really sort of laid the foundation for the Trinity in the as it developed in the Western Church. Uh, personally, I placed less emphasis on the development after that point. I think that's, uh, but it, it's the Nicene Creed and the theologians. The main theologians surrounding that, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzen, uh, Basil, uh, the so-called Cappadocian theologians, and Augustine. And, and I, I think that in them we find the foundation, the, the, the core idea of the Trinity as I've discussed it. And uh, that's that's a good place for us to begin. I, I've said this also, and I, I would emphasize. I think well, two things. First of all, I think we have to take seriously Jesus' promise in the Gospel of John that He will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will guide His disciples into the truth. I think that that's that, that's of fundamental importance for us as Christians to that the Holy Spirit was given to show us the right direction. Now I don't think the Holy Spirit has given to any of us or, or to all of us together a gift of infallibility. There I totally disagree with the Roman Catholic position. But I think we, we ought to have faith that the Holy Spirit has 
led the church in, in, in the right direction. And if there's any one area where I think this especially applies, it's the doctrine of the Trinity, because the, the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity is by far more widely accepted in the Christian church in the, in the broadest sense than any other particular doctrine, and it's, it's absolutely foundational. So, but, okay, building on that, I've said if, if the people who were instrumental in formulating the Nicene Creed and getting it accepted if we think they were fundamentally off the track, if they were, if they just got it all wrong, as for instance, Unitarians would say, then forget it. You know, the chances that we are starting from scratch are going to come up with something that is better are few to none. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we, I, I think we, need to assume that in the broadest outline, they were on the right track. And I would I feel very uncomfortable with uh, a view that says there's some big mistake in the Nicene Creed that we have to correct. Yeah. I think we're not mm -hmm. very likely to be successful if that's what we're trying to do. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, we can't make a fetish of every detail of what the Gregories or Augustine said and uh, put that down as unchangeable truth, okay? They were human beings, we believe, led by the Holy Spirit, but still human beings struggling to find, to understand this. And they were struggling. They, it shows in many places. And so the, the challenge, as I see it, is to, yes, honor and accept and the, the core as they developed it, but then formulate it in a way that is intelligible, and coherent and makes sense from our standpoint today. So it's not an easy job. And mm -hmm. that's, why, that's why I said, you know, you need to have some basic familiarity in these three areas, scripture, tradition, and philosophy, uh, to have a chance of, uh, of being successful. So that's roughly my perspective there. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really appreciate about your perspective, Dr. Hasker, is you really like emphasize the importance of like the guiding of the Holy Spirit amongst like these early Christians. Um, thinking about like the Council of Nicaea and all these things, like people wonder like, well, do Christians change this? Or da da da. Um, you can even expand this to issues of, like the canon or like things like this as the church develops. And you're one of the things you really help me like remember is that like the Holy Spirit is guiding these these founders and these theologians, these early philosophers is they're going to Nicaea and like guiding the church forward. And I think that's an important point to remember for Christians with, we're talking about the Trinity and just other important doctrines. I agree. It, it certainly applies to, to everything, all, all the doctrines. And 
you know, we can't we can't confer on ourselves infallibility because we will quickly prove that that isn't the case. But on the other hand, I think we do need to, to rely on the guidance of the Holy Spirit and uh, to keep us in touch with God, Christ, salvation, with what it's all about as we are trying to think through the various doctrines. Yes. Hmm. Okay, that's super helpful. Um, my next thing is like thinking about this philosophically. Uh, I've like when I've heard about the social versus like Latin versus Unitarian debate and like all these models of the Trinity, we'll get to the other models in a little bit. Um, one of the things that helped me make sense of this social doctrine is this idea that there's like three like centers of like self-consciousness, like the father is conscious, the son is conscious, the spirit is conscious, all in some sense, obviously not like directly in the human sense. Um, and that's kind of like the basis of the social model. Um, would you agree with that? Or would you have a different way of trying to philosophically no, I, explain I think, it? I think that's right. I think you're on the right track here. Yes, mm -hmm. I do. Is there anything else you would want to say about like, making sense like in in that route like explaining like what the social doctrine kind of entails about like the relationship between like the father the son the spirit um and like god and whatnot well here's a here's an idea that uh, maybe uh, somehow well one of the uh obviously one of the questions that people ask is well if there's father and son and holy spirit how are they one god um, think about astronomy. In astronomy, there there are things that are called that are double stars. Now, for instance, the 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 closest star to Earth, other than our Sun, is Alpha Centauri, which is about four light years away. That's a long way, but not very large in astronomical terms. Mm -hmm. But the star that we identify as Alpha Centauri is actually two stars. They're, they're so close together that uh, for, uh, for the naked eye or a low power telescope, there's only one object there. And so people have thought of it as one star but if you have a sufficiently powerful uh, telescope, you can identify these two stars that are so closely together that, so to speak, to uh, a naive viewpoint, it's only a single star. Well, the Trinity, <laughs> I want to say something like that. You know, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but unless you view it, so to speak, with the right telescope, there's only one thing there, you know? And of course, the Jews in the Old Testament worshiped a single God. They called him Yahweh. And that's, that was the way the Jews conceived of God. When you have the right telescope, so to speak, say the New Testament and the Gospels, you can discern that there are three entities that are so closely joined together that we readily view them as one. So there's a single beautiful star, which when you see with the right instrument, 
resolves itself into the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I kind of like that. Uh, if it doesn't help you, forget it. But uh, I kind of like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we're trying to like unpack this, Dr. Hasker, it seems to me like, and please correct me where I go wrong here, because this is one of the reasons I want to do this is like to help unpack this for people. When we're thinking about the social doctrine, and I'm trying to think about it for, like from your perspective. We have these three um, divine beings, the father, the son, and the spirit. Um, and they're all conscious. Um, but the way they like, I, I want to say work together, um, but maybe that's not the right way of thinking about it. But like they share, like they, in that relationship that they share with each other, each other there is god and when we're talking about like god that's what we're referring to is the relationship of like these three beings working together yeah you know a, a traditional term that comes in here is important in, in greek it's perichoresis or translated perhaps interpenetration that is the father son and spirit have an intimate awareness of the life of each person. Okay, now here's an example that comes from uh, Brian Leftow. Um, the Trinity, the whole Trinity knows that uh, before, before the coming of Jesus, knows that the Son will become incarnate, okay? But the Son, God the Son, can, can in effect say to himself, I am the Son, so I shall become incarnate. God the Father says, I am not the Son, I am the Father, so I shall not become incarnate. So you have to have, you have, to have two minds, in a sense there, but each of them is completely aware of what the other is thinking, and similarly for the Holy Spirit. And then there's a traditional uh, traditional doctrine which says that the works of the Trinity, the external works of the Trinity are undivided. That is, the three perfectly cooperate and whatever it is that they are doing, you know, uh, the father sends the son, the son becomes human in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit is involved in that as we see in the, in the Gospel of Luke, that, but they're always working together. So there's never any possibility that they are fighting each against each other. They don't have to take a vote and the majority wins. Uh, okay, they are, they are completely cooperating and complete. So, so together there is one authority, one, one authority and one, and, and yet there is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. yeah i think about it like because they are perfect they would work together sorry what's that i'm sorry i said i was thinking about it like as you were going through i was thinking like well yes if the father son and spirit are perfect like they're not going to like disagree about like something um right. that, so. that certainly is true yeah that's right yeah yeah so 
one more question about social trinitarianism dr hasker um and i'm thinking like why would god exist as like three persons rather than another number like why is it just father son and spirit why aren't there like four persons or two persons or one person or like a hundred thousand and thirty two persons um, why story and let me shock you by saying that there are quite a few questions about God and about the Trinity that we don't get to have good answers to. You know, there's something there that's a little bit beyond our understanding. Now, there is a there's a, a bit of reasoning that comes from a, a medieval philosopher, a theologian, Richard of St. Victor. And his, uh, he, his observation is that, uh, okay, a loving person, in a sense, needs another person to love. That is, uh, a person whose nature is, is to be loving is not completely fulfilled unless there is another person that he or she can love that is of equal worth. Uh, now, that's not to say that you can't love yourself. Self-love is perfectly legitimate. It's something, something which is uh, important. A person who doesn't love himself or herself is impaired. But self-love by just by itself is not completely fulfilling you, you a loving person needs someone else to love and so the father needs the son needs someone to love and but and the, according to the doctrine of the trinity the father generates, the father produces the son out of the father's own nature. And this, by the way, this would be eternal. This does not happen at a moment of time. But he produces the son as an object of love. Then Richard goes on to say, uh, two people can love each other, but their love is maximally fulfilled if, if they share together in love for a third person. This is part of what is involved in parenting. Parents, uh, a husband and wife, have their love complete, completed in their mutual love for a child. And so, that gives that gives us Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why not more? Why not a thousand? You know, if if three is better than two, why isn't forty-one better than forty? <laughs> well, there's an intriguing argument by Richard Swinburne on this effect. He says, "Okay, suppose suppose it's possible for the Father to." generate indefinitely many uh, other divine persons, you know. Um, well, uh, suppose, I mean, uh, given that, uh, you might say the more the better, but there's no upper bound on this. 
So God will, the Father will have to select some number of persons to generate. Now we, we take for granted that there need to be three, at least three divine persons, taking the argument that I mentioned a moment ago. Um, but suppose the Father decides to generate four, uh, three other persons, four in total. Well, that's fine, but the requirement for a satisfying relation, set of relationships would be met by three persons. So you might say that the fourth person is optional on the father's part. But if the fourth person is optional, then the existence of that person is contingent and not necessary. But the existence of a divine person must be necessary. Divine per you can't be, have a divine person that just happened to exist. And so it turns out that the existence of the fourth person is not possible. And so there are exactly three persons. Now that's Richard Swinburne. I think it's a really interesting argument. I, I'm not going to bet, uh, bet the farm on that, but <laughs> it's a way. But, but I think the idea that uh, God's love requires another divine person to love. I, I think that does have some force. And if you if you reject that as Unitarians do, then you're going to be pressed in the direction of saying, well, God necessarily creates a universe, a world to have an object for his love. And that's something that theology has been very reluctant to accept. The, by far the, the consensus view is that God's creation of the universe is optional. It's a matter of God's choice and God's will and not something that God was bound to do. So I, I think there's some force to that, but again, these things are uh, a little bit beyond us, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your epistemic, like, humility and saying, like, hey, like, there's a really interesting model by, like, Swinburne, which, you know, like, can make some sense. But, like, I'm not going to bet the farm on it. And we have to realize that, like, like, even, like, we're all limited human beings. And we have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about something like the triune nature and, like, why would God exist as three persons? So I appreciate your curiosity, but also your humility in looking at this topic. So... What I'm thinking about now is let's look at a few different models, Dr. Hasker, that are not social doctrines or social models um, and just kind of maybe like explain it and kind of give me your thoughts on it. Um, so what are your thoughts on like the Latin Trinitarian model? Well, uh, I guess traditionally, uh, the traditional Latin model uh, comes from Augustine. And in his book on the Trinity, he spends a lot of time drawing up analogies between the Trinitarian persons and psychological functions of the human mind. The one he focuses on most is the Trinity is analogous to uh, consciousness, reason, uh, and memory. 
And uh, he develops that at quite some length and has a lot to say about it. So that looks like there is one mind and the three persons are like different functions of that one mind. And, and I guess traditionally that's the, the Latin model has, is what, what tries to work, uh, work with that idea. But there's one big catch the people who do a lot with that seem to overlook the 15th and last book of Augustine's On the Trinity. And in that last book, he expresses considerable frustration that his analogy doesn't really do the job. He says, I've shown in this book that three things belong into one person, consciousness, understanding, and will, cannot match those three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he is saying himself, and he says this at quite some length, that this analogy is inadequate. And he, he expresses real frustration about this, but he's, he's been very, very honest about it. And according to Lewis Ayers, who is uh, an authority on, he's written a book on, a very well-regarded book on Augustine and the Trinity, in his later writings, in other writings, uh, after his book on the Trinity, Augustine never goes back never uses this comparison of the Trinity to, to three psychological functions of the hu human being. So uh, it's, uh, it's ironic that the, the Lat these Latin models are built on an analogy which Augustine himself recognized to be inadequate. And uh, and I think the thing that about the Latin models is that they have a lot of time trouble saying what a Trinitarian person is uh, on their view. So I, I think that uh, you know, the the drive behind Latin Trinitarianism is to uh, make it obvious that there is only one God, one person who is God, but I think they've gotten themselves in a problem there that they have a hard time getting out of. Mm. That's, that's a brief capsule of that. Yeah, that's helpful. And I appreciate you emphasizing like the question um, for someone that holds to like a Latin model of like, what does it mean to like be a divine person? Like, sure, you can have the oneness of God pretty easily, but then, like, what, what does it mean to be the son? And how is that different than, like, being the father? And how is it different than, like, being the spirit? And that's an important question that even Augustine realizes, like, a tough one to answer from a Latin perspective. Right, right. And uh, <clears throat> the, for, for instance, in Thomas Aquinas, uh, of course, Aquinas, <clears throat> and the, the later Latin tradition, they, they have an additional problem they have a strong doctrine of 
what is called divine simplicity, which really, if you, uh, in the strongest form, they're, they're saying in effect, there are no distinctions at all within God. Uh, all of God's attributes are really the same. God's love is the same as God's wisdom, is the same as God's power, and all of these are the same as God's nature. There are no, these distinctions are in our minds, but there are no distinctions within God himself. Well, that's, that in itself immediately threatens to wipe out the Trinity. Uh, because if there are no distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no Trinity. You, you, you've blown that. So what, what Aquinas says, and what others say following him, is that what is distinct are the relations, uh, the relation that the, the Father generates the Son, the Father in one term, inspirates, he breathes the Holy Spirit, and there are these relations, and that somehow is what the persons are. That doesn't actually make sense. A person, a person is an individual. A person is not a relation. A relation has to hold between two or more things. So, I think I think the later Latin tradition has gotten itself into a big problem there, and I and I'm not sure there's a way out. I, I think there is not a way out unless they seriously modify that doctrine of divine simplicity. The Greek Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, I think has done a better job of uh, maintaining the, the uh, doctrine of the Trinity as upheld in the Council of, uh, in the Nicene Creed and by the early fathers. But that's, you know, that's more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much to explore here. So thank you for that. Um, now let's go to like the Unitarian model. Um, like what is the Unitarian model and like what are your thoughts on it, Dr. Hasker? Well, the, uni uh, the Unitarian model has it very simply. There is one God, one person who is God, period. Uh, the Son... Uh, the, the Jesus is the son. Basically, Jesus is a human being as far as his, his ontological nature is concerned, but he is adopted by the Father and given special privileges. But Jesus is not God. He's uh, a human, and uh, as far as his nature is concerned, he's nothing more than human. Now, there are basically a couple of uh, importantly different versions of Unitarianism. What I'd call classical Unitarianism holds to Unitarianism, as I've just discussed it, and furthermore claims that this is consistent with what the New Testament says about Jesus Christ. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I see that, I blink my eyes and say, yes, really? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus, Jesus Christ. But this person who became flesh as Jesus Christ existed in the beginning with God the Father. He cooperated with the Father in creating the world. How is this? does this make sense if Jesus is a man and nothing more as far as his nature is concerned? Uh, as one Unitarian Del Dougie said, if, if Jesus was involved in creating the world, that makes him really, really old. <laughs> and yes, it would. It would. But uh, uh, personally, I think that view is totally hopeless as far as the New Testament is concerned. Uh, and in fact, Classical Unitarianism has largely died out, although there are still a few people still around. One of the one of the smartest ones is my friend Dale Tuggy, um, but uh, I think he has a really tough time. Now, then, then there is Arianism, which says that the Son is not. God, but is not a human being either. He is a, an exalted creature, uh, the, the first, highest, and greatest creature of God. This is the view that the church fathers and Athanasius and the Cappadocians and so on battled against in the fourth century. It's called Arianism for Arius. And I have to say that. You can, you can make a fair case for Arianism from the New Testament. I don't think it works, but there's a lot that would support that, that attributes to the sun superhuman powers and attributes, but does not straight out say that the sun is divine. But uh, of course, that's a radically different view than saying that Jesus is a man and nothing more than that. Uh, but uh, the only thing they have, the main thing they have in common is that uh, the Son is a creature and, and, not, and not truly divine. And I, I, I think that's a huge mistake, but uh, that's, that's where Unitarianism comes out. Mm. So maybe like then, like, in your view, like Unitarianism, like maybe it's philosophically coherent, but then on like the theological front, we have this really big issue of like the question of like saying that like, well, Jesus was only a man and like, there's no divinity, like Jesus right. was not divine. And that's a really big problem that we don't want to have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And of course, on the, I, I, what I've been talking about, I call classical libertarian, Unitarianism, but there's also quote, liberal Unitarianism, which represents the mainstream of Christian liberal theology, uh, beginning with uh, Kant and Schleiermacher and 
Ritual and Hermann and so on in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, and they, Harnack, and they, quite straightforwardly, they don't accept all the things that the New Testament says about Jesus as in any literal sense true. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann talked about demythologizing the New Testament, taking the mythology out. And that, that view has had quite a run in liberal Christianity. I, I don't think it's doing hugely well. I don't, I mean, uh, I think the majority, the strong majority of Christians find that unsatisfying and unsatisfactory. But the, it has this advantage that they don't have to try to stand on their heads and say all these New Testament texts show Jesus as simply a man and nothing else. Uh, they don't try to do that. And that makes their life a lot simpler biblically. But uh, of course, then they, they've completely taken, taken their uh, departure from the theological tradition and uh, from a lot that's in the, the Bible as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. Um, one more model is the Constitution model. Um, maybe this is a little less known compared to the ones we've talked about so far. But like, what is the Constitution? What is the Constitution model? And like, what are your thoughts on it, Dr. Hasker? Well, uh, the the idea of Constitution. Well, let me back up a little. The the version of the Constitution model that at least comes to mind is uh, one by Jeff Brower, Brower at who's at Purdue and Michael Ray who's at Notre Dame, uh, and they had uh, have an analogy here that's kind of nice. Okay, suppose we have a chunk of marble, which is carved into a shape that is an, a portrait of some historic individual, let's say of uh, Queen Elizabeth I, all right, um, just offhand. And this piece of marble is a pillar, which is upholding part of a building, okay? So you have, in a sense, you have one uh, something which is one thing here, which all, also, in a sense, is maybe three different things. You have a chunk of marble, okay, and this chunk of marble could exist without being uh, anything else than just the, the. In fact, at one point, it did exist just all as being itself. The chunk of marble is also a statue of, in this case, Queen Elizabeth. And it's also a pillar which upholds part of the building. So uh, how do you, what do you have here? Well, 
the naive, uh, I think the natural thing, first thing that the natural say is, well, there's only one thing, okay? There's this piece of marble, which is a statue, which is a pillar, but that can't be quite right because what happens, for instance, if you've chipped off all the features of the piece of marble that make it resemble Queen Elizabeth, but you've still got the piece of marble standing there holding up the building. Well, then you've destroyed the statue, but the piece of marble, the marble is still there and the pillar is still there. And you can also you can think of a way in which you can get rid of the pillar and still have the statue and so on. So what you say in that case is that, and philosophers have done quite a bit of work on this, is that the marble constitutes the statue and it constitutes the pillar, but it's not identical with either the statue or the pillar. Mm -hmm. So you can say, for instance, that the statue and the pillar are the same piece of marble, but they're not the same statue and pillar. And they want to say that the father and the son, for instance, are the same God, but they're not the same person. And this is what is, uh, what is known in philosophy as relative identity, okay? So you, you can have two things that are identical in one respect and non-identical in another respect. And so father, son, and spirit are identical with respect to godhood. They are the same God, but they are different persons. So if you consider the father and the son as persons, there are two of them. There are two, there are two distinct individuals. But if you consider them relative to the concept of God, they're only uh, one individual. Now, my view is this doesn't work. Um, because if you, if you, once you see that they are distinct, that gives away or get that you no longer can say that they're the same God. An analogy I've, um, I've worked out for that is, suppose there's a man who's accused of being a bigamist. And he says, well, okay, I'm married to Sue and I'm married to Ellen. And Ellen and Sue are two different women. But I figured out a way of counting so that Sue and Ellen together are only one wife. So I only have one wife, even though there are two women and I'm married to each of them. 
Well, if your eyes are crossing at this point, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I've got a chapter about their view in my book, and, uh, and I explain in more detail why it doesn't work. But um, uh, I, I also I, I use the idea of constitution, um, but I, that's in my own view, but that's uh, a little bit complicated. So I think I won't go into <laughs> Read my book. Yeah, there we go. Uh um, so once we get the idea with the constitution model that like the persons are distinct, it's going to be really hard then to say that like they are the same. Um, so what the yeah, model kind right. of to do. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Dr. Hasker, do you have any like thoughts, any other like last thoughts about the Trinity um, that you want to say before we wrap up here? Um, no, except uh, I, I would recommend a dash of humility, or more than a dash, for anybody who tries to work on this doctor. Uh, you know, who said God was going to be simple or easy? <laughs> you know, who said theology was going to be easy? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> nobody should have told you that. And if anybody <laughs> does, you should be very slow, slow to believe them. So, so uh, humility is called for and also boldness, willingness to see what you see and say what you see and really work on this subject. There, there, I think there is more truth to be found, but there are also more mistakes to be made. And so uh, it's a, a marvelous and wonderful topic. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hasker. Um, and as we wrap up, I'm wondering first, like, do you have any like recommended like resources, articles, websites to look at if people want to explore further? Um, and then second, like, are there projects you're working on in the future um, about the Trinity or something else as we wrap up here? Hmm. Well, I, I, I don't maintain a website. I uh, obviously, I'm going to recommend my book on the Trinity, Metaphysics and the Tractor's Personal mm -hmm. God. Um, there's a lot of a lot of good uh, material available, so I uh, uh, I guess all I can say is plunge in. If you want to be given a hard time by a Unitarian view. You might look up Dale Tuggy's uh, website, which is entitled Trinities, and he has a lot of stuff there. It will keep you on your toes if you're a Trinitarian. Uh, right now, there's a, a book that will, is, will be coming out soon uh, from uh, Whip and Stock, edited by Chad McIntosh, entitled... Uh, one God, Three Persons, Four Views. It will have sections by, besides me, uh, um, Bill, William Craig, Bo Branson, who is uh, representing an Eastern Orthodox view, and Dale Tuggy representing a Unitarian view. I, I think that book will be extremely interesting and uh, a valuable resource. It's, it's sort of 
in its in its final wrapping up stage right now. So it should be out by, I, I think probably by early next year. But there's an enormous amount of, uh, of material. So uh, just plunge in and uh, take a deep breath before you go under. <laughs> well, Dr. Hasker, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so grateful for um, your intellectual like rigor, um, but also like your humility and not being like, oh, I'm the guy that has all the answers and don't listen to these other guys. Like you're very rigorous and like defend your views very well, but also very thoughtful and realize like your position in the world. Um, so, so grateful for you and what you're doing. Um, and yeah, I'll leave a link down below where people can check out your books, hopefully. Um, and yeah, that's that. If you like it here in Apologetics, I encourage you to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. So should hear in Apologetics. Your support would be so helpful. Um, we're trying to get one new patron a month. Um, so if you value us, you can join for as little as a dollar a month. Dr. Hasker, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good one, everyone. And God bless. Okay.